Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. I'm back and I have got a very exciting episode for you upon my grand 2023 return. Recently, I was very happy to be approached by Penguin to welcome Kate Strasden to the podcast. Now, if you don't know who Kate is, I mean, I'm sure you all do if you have an interest in fashion history, but Kate is a lecturer in cultural studies at Falmouth University and is a freelance consultant for dress and textiles exhibitions. And she is on the podcast for this episode to talk all about her brand new, wonderful non-fiction book, The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe. In 2016, Kate was given an anonymous album full of annotated dress swatches that had been kept in a trunk for over 50 years. Its original keeper was unknown, and Kate has spent the next six years unravelling the secrets of this album and the lives of the people within it, and that wonderful album has become the basis for her new book. The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes offers us the story of a Victorian woman named Mrs. Anne Sykes, who, through her unique textile scrapbook, chronicles the story of her life, from family and friends to industry and empire, travelling from Lancashire to the colonies of Singapore. In 1838, this young woman, Anne, was given a diary on her wedding day by her new husband, and collecting snippets of fabric from a range of garments, she carefully annotated each one, creating this unique record of her life and times. And, as I said, nearly 200 years later, the diary fell into the hands of Kate, who naturally became fascinated by the album and spent the next six years unravelling the secrets contained within this album. And, piece by piece, she charts Anne's journey from the mill of Lancashire to the port of Singapore before tracing her return to England in the later years. Fragments of cloth became windows into Victorian life. Pirates in Borneo, the complicated etiquette of mourning, poisonous dyes, the British Empire in full swing, rioting over working conditions and the terrible human cost of Britain's cotton industry. Essentially, this wonderful book celebrates ordinary people, the hidden figures, the participants in everyday life, through the evidence of waistcoats, ball gowns and mourning outfits. And Strasden lays bare the whole of human experience in the most intimate of mediums, the clothes we choose to wear. As I'm sure you can imagine, this book could not be more up my street. So thank you so much to Penguin Vintage for reaching out to me to interview Kate for the release of this wonderful book, The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes. It's available in hardback at all major retailers today, the 23rd of February. And the link to purchase and other information about The Dress Diary will be linked in the bio of this episode. I devoured this book, honestly. It is an absolutely amazing, rich, fascinating read that every single one of you has to buy, read, reread, and recommend to anyone who has even a modicum of interest in history and and in fashion history because it's not one to be missed. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Kate Strasden all about her new book, The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes. Thank you so much for coming on. Kate, it's lovely to have you here. I just want to say I absolutely loved your book. It was such a fabulous read and it was completely unexpected for me how much you weaved Anne's story so seamlessly in with a book that's just sort of the scraps of fabrics I thought that was absolutely fabulous how you did that I could just visualize her life her family her friends so well as I was reading it It was sort of almost like reading a fiction book in a way the visualization of it was just so wonderful and obviously it tracks from the 1830s all the way to the 1860s so there's a lot of changes that 
happened during that time period. I think it's something that sort of gets a little bit lost as a time period because it sits in the middle of the Victorian era. So I really loved how much you made me visualise that time period <laughs> all the way from Lancashire to Singapore throughout the book. It was just wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. That's lovely. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. I absolutely loved it. Honestly, I love getting books like this because I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I'm a librarian for my work so I read a lot of fiction <laughs> and when I pick up a non-fiction book that kind of allows you to visualize things in this way I'm just I get completely sucked into it. <laughs> How did you feel when you first came to receive the diary as I bet you didn't quite realize what a gold mine you'd come across at first when you got it handed to you because you mentioned in the book at the very beginning that it was given to you as a gift. No exactly so I was um, I used to go to I haven't been for a while not since before the pandemic but um, I went to a lace class once a month, uh, made handmade Honiton lace with um, a group of women. And it was a lovely lady who went there. I was the youngest by quite some way. And after one of our meetings, she asked, knowing what I did for a living, she asked if I would be interested in coming to look at some things that she wanted to get rid of. And the diary actually was one of them. And it was the kind of, it was the last thing that she brought out of this trunk that was at the bottom of her bed. And she got it out and it was wrapped in brown paper and honestly it was one of those moments I don't think I'll ever forget it it was completely fine because I knew as soon as I took the brown paper off that it was something really special mm. and yeah it felt I just and at that point I didn't think there was probably any way that I would be able to because she didn't have any information on it and there wasn't anything that really identified it to anyone. So I thought, oh, well, it's just going to be a curiosity. You know, it's beautiful. It's full of all these fabrics, but that's that's as far as it will go. So I had no, no clue it would yeah. <laughs> amount to anything. I think we've all picked up things like that, you know, at, I don't know, flea markets and antique centres, things like that. And it's just a nice little diary that's, you know, cuttings of mm. things from magazines and things like that. And you think, oh, this is really cute and I'll enjoy this, but you don't ever think that you're really going to do anything with it. No. Like, at what point did you think that you needed to do a bit more research into Anne and the people around her and, you know, sort of show the diary to the world? Was there a turning point in the book for you or like a page or a piece of fabric in the book that was that kind of light bulb moment where you went, oh, actually, I need to do some more with this? This could go somewhere. It was a little bit ambitious. So I decided that I was going to, I completely romanticised it and decided that I should try and be authentic to the way that the diary was written. So I bought this leather bound uh, book of handmade paper and decided that I was going to transcribe every single caption in by hand <laughs> a nice pen so I sat I just sat down as a kind of you know if I had a spare half hour here and there I thought oh I'll just you know write see what so I basically on every page I wrote out what the pieces of fabric were on that particular page mm -hmm. um how many they were what they consisted of whether they were silk or cotton and then I, I wrote what the caption said above each one mm. so that became a just a kind of quite therapeutic really just started to transcribe the whole book but because they they seemed fairly randomly stuck in there didn't seem to it just felt like a nice thing to do but then I came across the swatch where Anne identified herself for the one and only time because yes. you know as I said in the book it's all of the swatches are written in the third person yeah. so it will just say it will just say you know Mrs. Taylor, 1843, or it will mm. say, um, it just gives a name. And it was only the once out of all sort of 2000 swatches that mm. Anne actually identified herself by saying, 
this is the first dress I wore in Singapore next to her name. And so that was really the, that's the biggest light bulb moment because that was the point where it felt possible that there might be identifiable people there. Yeah, that that makes complete sense. And to be honest, if I was writing a diary like this or creating some sort of album, I don't think I would name myself at any point because it would be for me. Exactly. (laughs) You know, you wouldn't necessarily. So you kind of, I I imagine you were a bit frustrated looking through it saying, whose was this? Why did she not name herself? I know. To begin with, I thought it must be a dressmaker because there are so many, there's over 100 names in the book. And so I assume maybe she was a dressmaker who was keeping, had just kept swatches. Like bookkeeping. Yeah, exactly. I bet the moment you saw her name and you saw the word I, it's just like a sigh of relief <laughs> when you just knew who it was. It really was. And such a small, and it was just, it, that was the only time she did it. So it was just, a. Yeah. it was next to this little piece of floral cotton mm. and just that one time. And that really did unlock the whole thing. That's so lucky as well that that, you know, that writing survived and the piece of cotton survived because who knows if that page had been torn out or got damaged mm. or water damaged, that would have been you know, completely removed that. No, serendipity in all kinds of ways, really. Yeah, well. yeah. <laughs> she wanted to be found. I think that's so interesting as well. The process of keeping a diary like this in terms of, you know, keeping scraps of fabric is so fascinating thing to do and it's so personal as well it's made me want to start doing I know it's very poignant I think it's a very poignant kind of because I think it speaks to that that power that fabric has to remind us of things so you know you don't need much of a piece of fabric to remind you of that whole garment or the wearer or whatever as soon as you see a pattern they, they it can be incredibly evocative of a particular time and place and I think that's I think that's how she used it I think it was mm. like an autograph album almost of just everyone that yeah. she knew and loved yeah and I think that is like you said it is extremely personal it's extremely poignant you know all of these things would have meant so much to her and they would have all been people in her lives that served a role at that point of time and this was her way of remembering them because you know in life there's people you forget there's times you forget and then you'll see something that will remind you you know of a certain time and place and you think oh yeah I completely forgot about that person or this place I I went to and I think this is a really nice sort of way of doing that at that time period within her means and what she had accessible to her and also what was important to her yeah exactly and you're right some people there are some people that appear throughout the diary and who are constant presences in Mm. her life and then there are other people that are just there maybe over a couple of pages Mm. or only appear once or twice and that's that's just real life, isn't it? Where there were some people that she encountered very briefly and then other people that were there for longer. Mm. So how was undertaking the sort of wider research of the dress diary? Because the book, I feel like you've really deftly handled piecing together her story. Like As you said, she only names herself once and there's so many names and surnames that recur. And there's, you know, no real way of knowing just from reading the diary without all your research who's who and if it's the same person or a different person yeah because you've also not done it chronologically which I loved you know the chapters are sort of based on themes and people and places and there's you know there's a whole sort of story that's been told here that isn't just year by year how did you find that kind of extra research finding out who the people were and you know placing them in certain contexts I bet that was quite difficult it was, and actually it was more difficult. I started writing this. So although I was given the book in 2016, I actually started the proper research and writing of it in at the beginning of 2020. And 
so with with in January 2020, I had all these grand plans to uh, travel off around the UK and go to Lancashire and stay in lots of different places and visit archives and things. And then, of course, come March, that became impossible. Yeah. And so really, this, as much as anything, this became a book about the pandemic for me because I wrote it. So I had kids who were school age. And so I was homeschooling. Um, I was teaching online. So I was teaching um, university teaching online. And the research and writing of the book became a kind of refuge from the pandemic in a way, because it was a sort of escape from the weirdness of everything yeah. else that was going on. But it did mean that I had to access, fortunately, all of the many digital archives that are available so newspaper archives and there was a whole batch of letters that I found in the Massachusetts Historical Society related to one of the people in the book and they're all digitized so I could read them from her so thank goodness because it was all all done from my desk because I couldn't go anywhere else Uh, and I think I'll always remember it for that as much as anything else I think. So it ended up actually not being maybe as difficult as it would have been if you had to do it all in person because they digitized a lot of things over the pandemic didn't they you know National Archives and stuff sort of decided exactly. to digitize everything yeah. so I bet that actually was a little bit of a help more than a hindrance in a way. I think so and also curators were really helpful so the Harris Museum where they're in Preston where there's there's things that were relevant to certain aspects of the book you know the curators were fantastically helpful at going oh you know we could we'll email you all the pictures that we have and we'll take some photographs and we could take you down to the stores with a with the on zoom and things like that so that kind of generosity of of sharing information was invaluable and really helped but yeah it's I sometimes wonder what whether it would have been a very different book had I not had I been able to travel and go and mm. visit archives and and what that might have looked like it's difficult to speculate isn't it because it does completely change your research when you do it in the physical place you kind of get a different energy about you when you're reading things I don't know it does kind of (laughs) it gives you a different vibe but I do imagine there was sort of an an element of being able to really hone into these things you weren't having to be timed you know things like that you were able to completely do it at your own pace and I imagine it was difficult to find particularly some of the women because as we know that you know the way women are documented is completely different to you yes. know male records and things like that were like birth and death records very helpful for you as well mm. in terms of placing people yes completely I mean yeah. there are many names in the book that I wasn't able to find at all because yeah. the names were either that their names were just very common so a name like mm. Fanny Taylor for example yeah <laughs> when I looked at that on Ancestry and I didn't have any additional dates to go by so mm. so helpfully sometimes Anne would put people's wedding if not the exact date, but the month. So she would give mm. you a month and a year. And as mm. soon as you have that and, and, a, and a vague sort of place it mm. might be, on, on Ancestry, for example, that helps enormously and you can find mm. things. But there are many, many names in the book where the names are common and there's no other information given. So they just sort of remained anonymous, sadly. Yeah. But equally for other people, you know, for the people that were given, that either had quite unusual names, which is always really helpful, mm. <laughs> or that she'd given them, given a little bit of additional detail, mm. then those census records were absolutely gold (laughs) yeah I bet they were (laughs) and there's probably a lot of nicknames as well we don't know if if that was anyone's real name necessarily it might have just been a given name that that she'd assigned to someone that's impossible to know really isn't it and obviously the misspellings there were um, a couple of people I found sort of accidentally via various sort of Mm. uh, 
roots and realised that the way that Anne had spelt them was different to the way that they had appeared on census records, for example. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's often luck when it comes to certain aspects of that sort of genealogical research. Mm. But now we've got, you know, something like this diary that places these people with their with their clothes, you know, not the whole outfits, but with the kind of, I don't know, visual of the sort of patterns they'd been choosing and the fabrics they'd be choosing. I think that what's so wonderful about this book is you can kind of get an image of these people, particularly the women, even if you don't know who they are, their background, you kind of get a, a sense of who they might have been based on just a single scrap of fabric, which I think is really just so lovely when you think about that. Yes. There was one lady who I didn't write about, but um, she was called Miss Garnet appropriately. And she had the most beautiful, there are three or four pages of hers from around the 1850s. And they're all these really bright colours with black stripes and things. And just, there's a great deal of personality that shines out of some people's. You can get a sense of them having made quite bold choices and it looked quite different to other people as you would expect as as now so um yeah it, it's lovely that you would see those things emerge even if you didn't know anything about that particular person yeah i think it's such a testament as well to how throughout time people have reflected who they are and their tastes and you know the the context of how they live and where they live based on their clothes I think it is something that gets forgotten about in history as well we do it now but people have always done it it's always been something that people have been interested in exactly Um, I think that was another thing that cropped up for me when reading this book is you describe colour and the pattern of some of these swatches and I think this is a time period particularly the Victorian era when you know um, Anne was living that as you mentioned is so associated with being dark and drab and dreary and Dickensian and all these things. But actually, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that at all. And this book is such an, uh, an example of how that's just kind of a, a falsified image that we've got. Yeah, exactly. I think, obviously, because the swatches have been in the covers of a book for, you know, the best part yeah. of 50 <laughs> yeah. plus years, they've retained all of their colour and the, and the mm. colours are vibrant and the patterns are just between printed cottons and and then the silks they are absolutely they really sing and I think that is true and actually I've always thought the 1840s 1850s not necessarily my favorite or but I'm I'm a bit of a convert now um, yeah yeah <laughs> the, yeah the colors and the patterns are just absolutely stunning and some of them really I would show them to my friends who are not um, particularly interested in fashion history in itself but uh, I would show them some of the patterns and they were they were really shocked at how modern some of them looked. They looked really yeah. really kind of contemporary. You could see them, you can imagine them in a in kind of fabric stores now. They look really modern. There was an article on the Penguin website where you shared a few extra little examples from the book and there was a, a white, I think it was a piece of cotton with like a geometric pattern on the top of it. And I just thought, what? This is from, you know, the mid-1800s. My brain yes. would totally not have made that association that that's when it was No, from. I know. It looks like sort of Marimekko or something yeah, from the it's more recent. Yeah, I, I love that because, and I think sometimes these patterns, they get distracted by the size of the dresses from this time period as well. Mm. There's so much going on. The hair is a distraction. There's so many layers and crinolines and, you know, all these things that actually you don't often stop to look very closely at the detail of the fabric itself. Mm. So was that something you found with this book? Were you surprised at how 
focused you were on the actual pattern or is that something that you've always noticed because yeah it's definitely something for me I was really it made me think in much more detail about some of the layering of those patterns particularly with things Mm. like the printed cotton where you've got the new roller printing technology that's that Anne's kind of witnessing and so the complexity of some of those layered patterns I was really blown away when when you study just a small piece but also the variety of cloth there were there were lots of very kind of sheer gauzes and gauze fabrics that have got like a tufted weave or things that we don't see now quite complicated fabrics I'm not even sure I know the name for some of them they're really they don't really I don't know they were just really interesting so I think that was the other thing was just that scope of people's people's knowledge of cloth and, Mm. and the variety that they were familiar with I was really forced to consider that because there was so much in there. Yeah, well, and as you bring up in the book, like Anne's life, her parents, you know, were cotton merchants and things like this. And her fabric and textile was such a huge part of her life. And it's sort of from the background of that, you realise how much of a part of the world it was. You know, so much of industry was based on, you know, fabrics and dressmaking and tailoring and things like that in a way that I think is not really what we have today. No, I mean, she, so she was brought up in Tilsley in mm-hmm. Lancashire and yeah. her father was a cotton spinner and so she, mm. so textiles was at the heart they were they were com- they were very comfortably off her father really made his fortune from from cotton and so she grew up with all of the mills around her and other family members worked in the print works cotton like the calico print works mm. um so she was very that was very much a part of her life and a part of millions of people's lives and you know I think it is important to think about the origins of that cotton it's something that I was really mindful of when I was writing it about about how much of it was coming from the southern states of America Mm. and you know so it's, it's really interesting I don't know how much in the same way that we get our I mean many people buy fast fashion and can sort of divorce it's that sort of being able to not think about the origins of it and not dwell on the fact that it's coming from places that still have really awful working conditions and things. And I think, you know, that was that was often the case with the way that cotton was sourced and produced here. Yeah, there's definitely a conversation there to be had because, you know, when you're learning about the Industrial Revolution at school and things like that, it's just not something that comes up. It's something I never attached. And it's only as an adult you start to learn about these things. And there's, you know, there's a whole different context to the things you're learning about. It does completely change it. But I think comparing it to how we have fast fashion today is really interesting because even though these things were happening in the backdrop, the clothes, I feel like, were more appreciated even then than they would have been now you know if I got a white t-shirt from Primark or something I'm not going to cut out a scrap of it and put it in a diary because it's no it's meaningless you know it's right you're quite right and I think it's because because te- cloth cost a lot more mm. and so people I think people valued their clothes more and I think they yeah. had more knowledge about things like you know have a relationship with their dressmaker so they would yeah there would be a conversation about how a garment should be made or what they'd like it to look like and there's more there's more sort of dialogue 
and ownership, I think, of the actual of the actual garments. And then they are worn for a long time or they might be made over into something else. So, yeah, there is that. Um, there's much more value attached to textiles and garments than, than now, I think. Yeah, and I think we're sort of more willfully ignorant nowadays as well to the things going on mm. behind the scenes. We know it's happening, but we're still... <sighs> a lot of people are still attaching themselves to it you know it's exactly i think i think what forced ultimately um all of those things that were happening around around Anne in the 1830s and 1840s um you know when you start to get the factory acts that are, that come in and the reports where workers were actually talking about their conditions um, that was happening on the doorstep and people were if not witnessing it for themselves it was kind of more present and I think it's it's that geographical distance allows us to be uh yeah like you say just just try and pretend it's not happening and I I just think the way that we treat clothes today is so different you know I did an episode on fast fashion actually so (laughs) I find it quite interesting Mm -hmm. because people are talking about it but still people shop in these you know online shops and things like that and it's a really interesting one and yeah it does have that lack of appreciation for clothes whereas someone like Anne she I we don't know how much she would have known about what was going on behind the scenes obviously it's a lot of speculation in that Mm -hmm. regard but she clearly appreciated the, the end product and the cloth and the clothes to even make this diary you know there's there's an element there mm-hmm. of the understanding that she had of how much work has gone into this that other people might not have had because she saw it happening around her you know yeah I think definitely that's the case whereas other people at the time might have been keeping an autograph album or collecting little poetry snippets from friends or or scraps of a different kind I think the fact that she chose cloth is is really interesting it, it, I think it clearly did speak to that part of her family life that she was really familiar with it's obviously meaningful to her in a way that it might not have been to other people you know mm. depending you know family roots were so big this time period you know your sister would have probably been your best friend in a way that people might not understand nowadays you know it was a different attachment so I think that sort of you get a sense of who she might have been just off that alone the fact that she kept you know so many pieces of fabric from people I really I yeah I love that about about the book it was so lovely you bring up right at the beginning of the book speaking of sort of sisterhood and companionship a lot about wedding fashion which I love reading about I'm actually getting married myself this year (laughs) thank you and I'm working on my dress myself with my mum so for me reading about the same thing happening at this time period you know that idea of sort of companionship and Mm. you know closeness with family and your sisters I was like oh this is this is lovely to read (laughs) I mean maybe I'm a bit biased in that respect because of you know the context of my life right now but I loved reading about the sort of choices people were making for weddings at the time period. And I think having, you know, such a personal version of that in this book was really lovely to see. Yeah, the weddings are interesting because she marks them out as special by the way that she frames them. So she literally puts all of the wedding dresses that she includes um, that are scattered throughout the book, but she frames them in a a sort of wax paper Mm. um, border. And none of the other scraps in the book have that kind of treatment so she she makes them special by doing that and then yes you get these and and what's so brilliant about the weddings is that they are often the ones that can unlock more of the stories because she Mm. will give uh, a little tiny bit more detail and then you could identify people but yeah that's that's always really I always find those she, she clearly 
weddings were special to her and she marked them out in that very particular way and of course the very her own wedding to Adam is recorded in that way there's a piece of her dress and there's a piece of his waistcoat and then the dress that she wore at the at their wedding breakfast uh, so so you can almost rebuild each of the garments that they wore on that day in, in 1838. Mm, that's so lovely. And I think it's really interesting as well in thinking about how people did their weddings then versus how they do it now. Because I think the wedding now is such a it's such an image supplanted in our mind of what you wear, how you do it, where you go. And it's, it's really interesting to see the difference, but also the similarities. I think you can sort of see yourselves at one of these weddings, you know, for one of Anne's friends based on the scrap she includes. You think, well, it's not so different <laughs> really to how we do it now. No, exactly. All the pale, the kind of pale silks are there. Mm. And, and the, um, there's a lot of, there were, I don't, it's hardly any dark, darker colours for the, for the wedding dresses. They're all pale or ivory or white. And so, yes, you do get that sense of things that have stayed the same, but but also, I think the idea of the wedding breakfast that that is a, a different. We that's kind of fallen out of use yeah. now. Um, but yeah, they're very. It was very lovely to see those sorts of connections that were being forged and then um, and then carried on through the book. And of course, have no notion, no way of knowing what that worked out as at real life. I mean, I really, yeah. <laughs> I hope Anne and Adam were really happy together. They were married for a long time and um, I hope they were happy. But Yeah, I mean, she went all the way to Singapore with him. So <laughs> you'd think she well, felt exactly, some... And they, yeah, and she came back again. So It's so hard yeah. to know, I imagine, yeah. isn't it? Like you can create an idealised version and you think, I hope, I hope that that's yeah. how it was. But I also loved in that part you talk a little bit about um, the history of like bridesmaids and bridesmaids clothes as well because obviously for me as a bride that's something that you think about mm. um, and I'm very conscious of not forcing anyone into an outfit they're not comfortable in. I'm just saying here's the general colour, do what you want. <laughs> but the fact that people, the, the bridesmaids would have dressed more or less the same as the bride in the same colour as you mentioned is mm. really interesting because I think now that's so frowned upon. Yes, that's a really interesting point actually. So the idea that you had this kind of bevy of bridesmaids who were all um, in some of those later, I mean this is after Anne, but in some of those later photographs that you see of Edwardian weddings, you'd be hard mm. pressed to pick out the bride because they're all wearing uh, white dresses. They're mm. all carrying bouquets um, and it's it's quite difficult to spot the bride. So that's a real difference. You're right in that now, if anybody else wore a pale colour that was similar to the bride, that would that would be a big faux pas. Yeah, it would be a it? talking point. Everyone would be it like, would. did you see? She's wearing the same colour. You know, it would be so, <laughs> such a drama around the wedding, I imagine, because it's just not what we're we're used to at all you no, know it's a different kind of it's been it's evolved into a different kind of thing yeah now. I think the idea of the bride standing out in that way is also mm. evolved mm. over time I don't yeah. really know much about why that is is it you know the influence of Hollywood and places like that you know that often I find whenever I'm doing research that's like a real turning point in terms of what people idealized you know yeah I think it became the cult of the bride mm. <clears throat> not necessarily the sort of bridezilla thing but yeah. I, think, <laughs> I think you're right the idea of the bride because those days, I think increasingly as more and more people spent a lot of money on, mm. on weddings, the idea that the bride has to be singular on that day and not mistaken for anybody else became increasingly important throughout the 20th century, really. And so you don't want anybody to look the same as you. And um, I think probably as a kind of post-war thing, that has become more and more the case. Very true. I also think now we don't get the chance to wear 
such big elaborate dresses than we do when that's our only day at a wedding is to wear a dress that dramatic whereas Mm -hmm. you know when Anne was a woman she would have been wearing these huge crinoline dresses every day so maybe she didn't have the same excitement of I'm going to put on all the layers and the corset and the underskirt that people have now it's their kind of yes yeah they want to be seen in it because that chance to do that for the first time so a wedding dress has become a very well for a lot of people a very different kind of um, garment to anything that they would wear at any other time so that in itself is is quite different yeah and obviously you say in this that people would have re-dyed their wedding dresses and reworn them yeah I couldn't see anybody doing that you know in the last sort of 50 years you no. wear your dress and you put it in the box and you never <laughs> well exactly and I guess again because because an 1840s wedding dress if you dyed it there would be an occasion that you could wear that same or similar style uh, because you might have an evening function or something. And again, I think less and less that's the case, the, the idea of having formal functions that people would attend in a very particular kind of evening dress. That just doesn't happen anymore. So yeah, it's less and less relevant. Yeah, and having dress codes and things like that are less relevant, you know, whereas I think at this time period, certain of functions and events would have necessitated a certain type of mm-hmm. dress. Yeah, so true. then your wedding dress might have been the best thing you had. <laughs> so exactly. you would have, you know, reworn it. But I, I imagine if now, if someone re-dyed a wedding dress and then wore it to someone else's wedding <laughs> the uproar you know you just couldn't imagine it it's really interesting to see and it would be quite obvious I think because wedding dresses are certainly the kind of uh stereotypical yeah. I we might have of a wedding dress is very clearly that isn't it it doesn't really um doesn't necessarily fit any other kind of yeah context. yeah I found this the shapes and the silhouettes are just mm they look like a wedding dress I can't put my finger on what it is about them but yes. they have like a, yeah. a yeah. blueprint <laughs> yeah for what they're supposed it's to very look distinctive like. vibe yeah yeah it is really interesting it's something I'd not really given much thought until I obviously started shopping for myself so that's yeah. really why I picked up on this part so much because it's just <laughs> a part of my life right now but it is also really interesting but do you think that's also why dresses started to be made in white or lighter fabrics so that you could re-dye it and re-wear it? Because obviously if you had a brown dress or something, or a very patterned dress, it would have no re-wearability. Do you think that's um, part of it? or? Partly. I mean, the, the thing is what you find, um, not necessarily in the album, but certainly for people who were perhaps on a more restricted income, they would wear a darker dress a different coloured dress because they could wear that again for as a kind of Sunday best or so it wouldn't be as elaborate a garment it would just be the best version of a garment they could afford that would be worn on their wedding day and then worn again as a um for you know kept as a best dress but but very much wearable so um that's the sort of other side of that really that yes you can read you can dye white dresses and they would they would be um they would be more likely to be easier to change. But if you wore a coloured dress, then that doesn't need to be changed. You can just wear it again anyway. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. It's complete it's mm. just a completely different way of doing it in terms mm. of the clothes themselves. Mm. But the general routine of the day I feel like is is quite similar, really. The idea of the bridesmaids, you go to the church, then you have your party afterwards, all of that kind of stuff. It's yeah, it's yeah. a structure we still stick to. You just mm. wonder if that ever going to change now? Is that just how we do things? <laughs> I think what they didn't have was the kind of, I think you had your wedding breakfast, but then that was pretty much it. There wasn't, I, I don't think there was the notion of a kind of a reception in the mm. way that 
we have now it was it was close family and <clears throat> for the wedding breakfast and then the the idea that you would kind of I mean I'm sure some people did but I yeah. think that much more um expected structure now of having a a reception after the wedding wouldn't wouldn't have been something that they would recognize in the same way now obviously Anne's wedding is right at the beginning of the book that's how it starts with her wedding dress but were you surprised with how the story of her life developed and where it went you know were there things that came up that you didn't expect obviously she moved to Singapore for a long time that was certainly something I (laughs) didn't expect to be in the book were there any other things I think that travel aspect was really surprised me I mean Mm. that first swatch that I found where it says the first dress I wore in Singapore yeah I I first saw that and the distance that I mean I knew that of course I knew that going to Singapore at that point can't have been very easy but so I think in my head I, I think even then I hadn't quite anticipated how long it would take so I thought oh maybe she went there on her honeymoon or something of course people didn't go to Singapore on their honeymoon <laughs> no, that point. Yeah. not on a boat <laughs> not on a boat honestly but until you actually really think about the logistics of that mm. I realized then that when I tracked back through I managed to find uh an old book written about the history of old Singapore. And of course that Mm. was full of the European merchants, male merchants who populated the settlement of Singapore at that point. And Adam Sykes cropped up quite often as one of the kind of movers and shakers of merchants in the region. And so once I read about his various contributions to the community, I realised that you know, Anne had to be there as well. And I found that they boarded a ship from Liverpool uh, early in July, 1840. Okay. And it took them four months. They arrived in November and then lived there for seven years and were part of that community. And so seven years of the diary is full of the the life that they lived there. And it was a really, I think it was when I started to read about that part of the world at that time that I just that kind of blew me away because there's no there's no real infrastructure there mm. there's a it's a very small European community because they um they're trading with China and India and they're moving goods back to America and Europe yeah yeah so they kind of operate in this they're sort of like the middle uh, the middleman with as a stop off mm. and just the the kind of variety so all these ships are coming in and out um but there's tiger attacks and there's no there's no not police force but you know there's no <clears throat> local um law enforcement or anything like that it's all to to be a young woman from lancashire who'd grown up in in these mill towns of the north yeah. of england to then find herself in, <laughs> in singapore um i can't even imagine incredible. Like it would be quite overwhelming now, mm. even if you'd never left your hometown or, or at least your country no. to make such a, a big trip. So much change must have, yeah. I, I can't even imagine. And she's probably never even seen pictures of anywhere outside of, you know, a certain bubble we lived in. I think nowadays also we're so used to access to sort of everything. I could Google a, certain, a very small town in Singapore now and I'd get images of it straight away. Yes. Whereas then it was like completely completely new world in that way and I think it's things like communication I mean that's what I realized when I when I was reading about how long the letters would take because they're coming via ship and the ships 
it, they take months to arrive. So yeah. you would only get a handful of, of post deliveries a year. And so communication with friends and family becomes very limited and you are much more isolated. And I think we all, of course, I, of course, I know that they haven't got access to easy communication, but it's only when you read just how few moments of contact there must have been with her parents and her friends and her relatives that really stuck out to me as being quite intrepid that she would that yeah. she kind of forged a life there away far away from everyone she knew yeah I mean good honor that can't have been <laughs> can't mm. have been easy and I think that's also where the diary came into play because I think people were sending her swatches from home oh um, yeah because okay. they're easy to send you know they're small they would fit into a letter so quite often there are swatches in the book that are from the period 1840 to 1847 where she's actually where you know she's actually um in Singapore yeah yeah but they're from home and oh, so I think she's sure. people are sending them to her I bet that was quite tricky to work out right is this one yeah, from exactly. Singapore is this one from home which yes could you tell a difference between the swatches you know were they different in color or material makeup were there differences I think she was she was definitely wearing lighter weight um things often yeah of course Singapore mm. she includes morning robes and and they're of a kind of lightweight cotton she does have some silk but I think there's definitely a sense of her having to adapt her wardrobe for the climate at that point yeah particularly from Lancashire I can't imagine it's very it was very warm there exactly. <laughs> you know so I bet that was also a bit of a change of pace for her you know just getting used to the heat yeah I can't imagine that was that was an easy thing I imagine that this is something that people don't come across every day you know something like this that tells you about the minutiae of a life like that, somewhere like that. It's a part of history I knew absolutely nothing about before I came across this, mm. particularly at this time period. And now I feel like through these tiny little examples of, you know, the, the cloth you mentioned and also just the story that you've weaved through, I can kind of picture this whole world that I didn't know anything about before. And I think it's a testament to to clothes and to fashions and, you know, what, what they can do and what they can tell you about both a person and, and a place in general as well. Yes, exactly that. And it clearly, I think it helped her, um, helped her maybe through difficult times mm. and just helped her to recall people and places when she wasn't necessarily near them a bit of grounding as well I imagine it kind of gave her something to focus on yeah because you mentioned that she had a few friends at a time in Singapore you know a few sort of uh, friends that were women and sort of people she had a bit of a you know correspondence with but they weren't people that they were thrown together by circumstance yeah. by the fact that their husbands were also mm. merchants I mean that was the the people that she was connecting with in Singapore, the women were all the wives of other merchants and they were all different. Some of them were German merchants and um, so they were from different parts of Europe or America. Um, but that was the only thing that connected them in terms of, you know, shared interests was the fact that their husbands were all working there as well. And um, so that can't have been easy. And imagine something like the diary was her little bit of autonomy. <laughs> you know, she'd been taken to this place through her husband. She'd not really made any of yes. that. She'd not made that choice herself. We don't know no. whether she no, no. wanted to go or, you know, how she experienced that. So no, exactly. I mean, she's although she's clearly I mean, I don't know. Obviously, I can't I can speculate about yeah, what yeah. her life has been like, but but like but. Yes, how much she actually enjoyed that experience or um, or what she felt about having to just be at the whim of, of 
um, where his work took him. Um, it's not so very unusual. I mean, there's plenty of people no, yeah. that might still be the case, but um, but yes, I think it's a really it was a fascinating aspect of her life that I I had really anticipated. No, I I just wouldn't expect it, do you? It starts in Lancashire and then ends up all the way in yes. <laughs> a small civilization in Singapore. You just think, well, I did not. This is a trajectory you would not have had in your mind. But then, as you're, you know, from the the book you saw, you've weaved and everything, it, it makes complete sense naturally with his work and the, these sorts of things. It actually is a trajectory that isn't completely unfounded when you realise the context of their lives and their jobs and things like that. Yeah. What a delightful time that was. Hmm? (laughs) Thank you so much to Kate for taking the time out of her very busy schedule to chat with me all about her new book. It was such a great conversation and I really enjoyed every second we were chatting. Thank you, Kate. I hope you all enjoyed this episode because you are in luck. This is only part one. Next episode, in a week's time, I'll be chatting with Kate about the wider world of fashion history, its discipline, its perceptions, and how women can carve out their own space in academia. So keep your eyes peeled for that one. But in the meantime, go and buy Kate's book. (laughs) As I said before, The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes is available at all major retailers, including Waterstones and Amazon, you name it. And trust me, it won't disappoint you, as I hope this episode has approved to all of you. There is so much we also didn't touch on in the book ready for you to explore. It's honestly chock full of such fabulous fashion content and there are definitely surprises along the way. Do follow and have a good look at my social media. It's at Silhouettes Podcast on Instagram and Kate's too. That's at Kate Strasden on Twitter and Instagram to see some more bonus content from this episode and just to keep up to date with what we're both doing and particularly with what Kate's doing as she shares a lot of information about her new book but also just about fashion history in general and the new things that she finds out and the research she's undertaking and also some wonderful images of pieces of fashion history like dresses and accessories and things like that. So do keep an eye out on her Instagram and mine as well. So I hope to see you all in the next one when me and Kate will talk all about the wider discipline of fashion history. And thank you so much for listening into this episode. I hope you had as good as a time as I did. So thanks for listening, everyone, and stay fab. We will see you in the next one. The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe by Kate Strasden is published on the 23rd of February 2023 by Chatwin Windus Vintage Publishing.